I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews 4.1, and I'm going to read through Hebrews 4.11. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let me pray. Father, we ask that our head, Christ, the head of this body, the church of which we are members, that He would powerfully speak to us by His Spirit and through His Word. We ask that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches. That he would turn on the lights in our dark minds so we would understand what it is that he superintended the hand of the author of Hebrews for the sake of his church, not only then, but in all ages. We ask, Father, that as we focus specifically on Christ as our eternal rest, And as we consider this token, this pledge, the Lord's day that He's given us as a promise of the eternal rest that is ours at the consummation of all things upon His return, we pray that Your Spirit would drive into our hearts and minds what a gracious gift we have been given. That we would rejoice in the resurrected Christ knowing That he is the answer to our sin, our rebellion, the broken, dark, wicked world we see around us, the death that lurks behind every corner and that is coming for all of us. 
that we would recognize that Christ is the resurrection and the life, that he is our eternal rest, and that he's given us the Lord's day every week, that we might rejoice in that great hope we have in the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do we gather on Easter Sunday? I mean, why not celebrate Easter on Saturday or Thursday or Tuesday? Why on Sunday? Further, what is it about Sunday that has led the church throughout the centuries for a millennia to meet on that particular day? I mean, we know the church met on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Why has the church historically met on the first day of the week? Why on Sunday? Why did the New Testament church regularly meet on Sundays, the first day of the week? Why not Saturday? Saturday is the seventh day of the week. Saturday is the Old Testament Sabbath day. Saturday is the day in which God commanded his people to meet together in Exodus chapter 20. Saturday is the Sabbath that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. God had commanded his people to rest on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, which is Saturday. So why didn't the early church meet then? I was it just a matter of convenience. Sunday just works out better in the schedule. What, was it just that the Jews had dibs on Saturday? They've got dibs. We'll go to Sunday. Or did they believe it was necessary, even essential, to meet on Sunday? Did they believe that it was patterned after any major redemptive historical events, events in the history of our salvation? Here's my contention this morning. The reason we meet for Easter Sunday is the same reason that the church has met on Sundays throughout its history. Because Christ rose on the first day of the week. He rose on Sunday. So we gather on Easter Sunday, and frankly every Sunday, because He is risen. Friends, the Lord Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day of the week. You know what else happened on Sunday? The Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost on Sunday, the first day of the week. And the church rather than get regularly gathered on Sundays, the first day of the week. And that is all necessarily connected. None of that's accidental. It's essential. The apostles, the early church, didn't believe they had a choice to schedule their corporate worship gatherings on a different day. They believed they had to meet the first day of the week. It's so patterned that Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 16, make sure that you take a collection on the first day of the week so that when I come to you, you don't have to, I don't have to get together another gathering because he knew they were going to be meeting the first day of the week. He knew they'd be meeting the first day of the week in Acts chapter 20. That's why while he was in a hurry to get to the location he was going to, he hurried up to get somewhere so he could rest on the first day of the week participate in corporate worship, and then he continued his journey. You see that in Acts chapter 20. 
But in our culture, it seems that Easter Sunday has become set apart among all Sundays. You know what happens on Easter Sunday, right? You get dressed up. I mean, look, I see most of you every Sunday. You look a little nicer this Sunday than usual. (laughs) Preparations are made. The whole family comes along. Festivities are planned. We have barbecues or we go to brunch or whatever it is. And I love to see all that. I really do. But I'm hoping you grasp something important this morning. For the Christian church, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. There's not one Sunday where we are not gathered to worship on that day precisely because we are singing about the fact that He is risen. It's because the Lord Jesus rose on Sunday that this is called, this day is called by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day is a gift to the Lord's people, His church. It's a gift that sings to us a message we desperately need to hear. We desperately need to hear. Look, as we speak right now, As we gather and sing and pray and hear the word preached right now, authorities in Sri Lanka are cleaning up dead bodies in at least three different churches that were bombed this morning by Islamic terrorists. The last death count was nearing 160 and, and going up. They assume it will go way over 200. As we're gathering right now as Christians, those Christians this morning were gathered in Sri Lanka and they were blown to pieces. What does the church have to say in the face of that kind of horror? You know what's not going to answer the grief of those people suffering right now? You know what's not going to help those folks who now lie dead? Easter bunnies. Easter egg hunts. Barbecues. Brunch. The emptiness of all of that. is so unbelievably clear in the face of such devastation. You think the families of those churches are going home and having an Easter egg hunt today? I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate and have a good time. I'm saying when we gather on the Lord's Day, what is it that we're saying? When we gather on Easter Sunday, what is it that really, ultimately matters? And does it answer the question those people have right now? But we do have an answer to that today, don't we? And we do have an answer to that every Sunday. Christ is risen. That's why we gather every Sunday. It's a gift. It's the church coming together And hearing our hope proclaimed. 
The hope that Jesus paid for my sins. The hope that Jesus rose from the dead. And because he is risen, I will be risen with him. So here's my hope this morning. I want to look at this whole concept of the church gathering on Sundays to worship on the first day of the week. And I want to look at it as a gift of the Lord to us. And I want to do that under two parts. The first part is this, the gift of the Old Testament Sabbath. And the second part is the gift of the New Testament Sabbath or the Lord's Day. So let's look first at the gift of the Old Testament Sabbath. And I want to work from Genesis to Hebrews 4. We've already, I've already done the exegesis of Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 for you. So I want to come back to 9 and 10 by starting in Genesis 2. So let's look at the gift of the Old Testament Sabbath starting in Genesis 2. So keep your hand in Hebrews 4 and turn to Genesis chapter 2. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, Genesis is the first book, the beginning. <clears throat> chapter 2 and verse 1. As a summary, after the six days that we read about in Genesis chapter 1, if you remember Genesis chapter 1, it starts with seven words in the Hebrew, seven words intentionally in Hebrew. In English, it comes out to more, but seven words to focus on completion, on perfection. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he goes on and tells us, but the, the earth was formless and void, Right? And so he comes and talks about how the Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep and then creates order, if you will, out of that chaos. And as the order is created out of that chaos, he talks about these six days. Three days of forming, three days of filling. On the sixth day, he comes to man. And after all that's completed, we hear this announcement in chapter 2, verse 1, as we come into the seventh day, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God created in the space of six days. But let's be clear, God did not need six days to create. It wasn't that God thought, how long will this take? This is going to take a bit probably six whole days. God could speak in one moment, and it all lives. He took seven, six days, sorry, as a pattern for us. Man was created on the sixth day. Man was created on the sixth day as a blessed image bearer of God. Look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, where we get a focus in after he's created everything else we get the first time where God deliberates all the way through here God is God speaks and it is God speaks and it is God speaks and it is and it's good and it's good and it's good and then on the sixth day we get this pause of deliberation then God said let us make man in our image incidentally I think that's a tipping of the hat early on to Trinitarianism, but I'm not going to get into that this morning. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And I think image and likeness are 
largely saying the same thing. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, now notice this, emphasis again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, them. <coughs> Excuse me, him. Male and female, he created them. This long focused, if you will, deliberation on the creation of man in God's image. Because man becomes this kind of special creature, the crowning of God's creation, the one who bears his image, the one who reflects his glory to the whole of the earth. And look what it goes on to say, verse 28. And God blessed them. What's the first thing God did for man after he created him his image? Blessed them. He blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were created to rejoice in God and enjoy his good creation And we were blessed and commanded to reproduce and spread his glorious image across the earth. If you will, God created everything as a cosmic temple. As a cosmic temple in which God's glory is made manifest to his creatures. And we are the image bearers in that temple. Listen, I'm not making this up. Isaiah says that God created the heavens and earth as a temple. Isaiah 66, 1, just listen. Thus says the Lord, heaven, and he's not speaking, he's speaking of the heavens, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house, that's speaking of a temple, tabernacle, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? The whole of his creation is the place of his rest. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And he created this temple for his own glory. The heavens, Psalm 19.1, declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. All of creation, this entire temple, is singing his praise. And we are the images he created to be in that temple, bearing his glory across the whole of the earth. In this cosmic temple, God lovingly dwelled with his image bearers and blessed them. God's dwelling with us is the very definition of blessing. You understand that? What is it to be blessed? To be blessed is to dwell with God. To walk with God in the cool of the day. To be a friend of God. To be a child of God. To hear that I am your God and you are my people. That's the blessing of the Lord. God did not create any of us. Listen, he did not create any of us or any of this stuff because he needed something. He didn't have any need. You understand? God didn't need you. Clear? He didn't need me. He isn't needy. Isn't that good news? I remember in the 1990s, I'm going to make a very embarrassing admission. I watched Touched by an Angel. 
I did. I did. My less theologically sound days, plus I enjoy sappy, sentimental stuff. I still watch all the Hallmark Christmas movies. It's terrible acting and all, because I have this weird sentimental problem. I don't know what it is, but I need to repent of it, I'm sure. So there was a scene in Touched by an Angel, I still remember this, that demonstrates bad theology, and as bad as my theology was then, I still recognized it, where somebody asked the angel, basically in the midst of some horrific situation, um, well, why, why, did, why did God even make me? And the angel looks at him um, and says, because he needed you. He was lonely. I don't know about you all, but I'm terrified of the notion of a needy, lonely God. I know what a needy, lonely man or woman looks like, and the idea of the creator of the heaven and earth being a needy, lonely God is terrifying. God did not create any of this stuff because he needed us. He created for our good. For our good and his glory. God displaying his glory in all of creation is a gift of his divine love to us. In other words, God is glorious and satisfied in and of himself, and he created us so that we might share that satisfaction and that joy and that delight. It's just a gift of self-giving divine love. It's in the worship of God that we receive him, and there's nothing better for the creature than God himself. Nothing. When God finished creating everything in the space of six days, he rested from creating on the seventh day. Look at Genesis 2 and verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. Notice it's the only day of all the days he says, good, 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 gets to the sixth day after the creation of man and says, it was very good. And then in the seventh day, we hear the one day that gets blessed, if you will. So God blessed the seventh day, that's Saturday, and made it holy. He declares that day to be holy. Because on it, why? Here's the reason. Because on it, God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. What is the ground for which the seventh day is set apart from every other day of God's good creation? It's not that on the seventh day is the only day God wants to be worshipped. It isn't that on the seventh day is the only day that God has finally shown himself to be good or holy or worthy or anything else. So why that day? The ground is because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now listen, it isn't that God needed a divine nap. It wasn't like, man, that was a lot of work. I better take a nap. He wasn't tired. Understand that? God can powerfully work with all of his power, and because his power is inexhaustible, he doesn't drain himself of even a bit of energy. Not even a tiny bit. He doesn't become tired. He didn't need six days to create, and he didn't need a nap on the seventh day. He created in this way, and he set the seventh day apart in this way to establish a pattern for man. 
He made the Sabbath day, as Jesus tells us, for man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God's rest on the seventh day, on his Sabbath, and is declaring the Sabbath holy, is not filling some need for God. He didn't say, I want you to get together every Saturday and worship me because I start to feel sort of down after six days. He doesn't have a need. The Sabbath day is singing of the telos. You know, telos, the teleology, the purpose. The end of something. Why something is. It's telling us what its purpose is. And the Sabbath day is telling us the purpose of creation. Most specifically, the purpose of the creation of man. God's rest is God's delight in his own work of creation. And in giving man the Sabbath day, God was telling man that the worship of God, eternal delight in God, is his telos, his purpose, his end. The Sabbath, the seventh day, was a token, a pledge, a symbol. It's like my ring. I got married. I made vows. This ring is not my vows, and this ring is not my marriage. If I take the ring off, still married, understand? Love my wife just the same, still in the same covenant. Put the ring on, nothing changed. You guys get it? It's a token, it's a pledge. I made vows to my wife, she made vows to me. We got a symbol, a token, or a pledge of our vows to remind us of the nature of our relationship and the exclusivity of our relationship. God gave us the Lord's Day, or in this case, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath Day as a token, a pledge, a symbol. It was a token, a pledge, a symbol of what would belong to man for eternity if he obeyed the Lord. And when I say man here, I mean specifically our federal head, our representative, Adam. If Adam obeyed the Lord, if he worked the garden and kept it, Genesis 2.15, if he avoided eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would eat from the tree of life and so live forever. And the Sabbath day was a token of this eternal promise, a pledge of the eternal blessed rest he would have in the Lord forever. Adam would enjoy God's glorious rest his divine blessed presence forevermore if he obeyed God and that was pledged to him in the Sabbath day. But if Adam sinned and fell short of the glory of God, then Adam would lose the blessing of eternal dwelling with God. And Adam sinned, Genesis chapter 3. And in Adam's fall, Sinned we all. And the wages of sin is death. That? We were created for glory. That's what Paul means when he said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thus, Adam was kicked out of God's glorious presence in the garden, and he was placed under the curse. Of God. Yet God promised to send the seed of the woman. 
there would be a second Adam who would come. And the second Adam would come and deliver the promised rest in God that was lost due to the fall of the first Adam. The rest of the Old Testament, if you will, not the rest in i.e. the Sabbath rest, but the remainder, I'll change the word, the remainder of the Old Testament is the progressive revelation of this coming second Adam, this seed of the woman. We're told in Genesis chapters 12 through 50 that the seed of the woman would come from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, from Abraham's nation, Israel, and from a specific tribe of Abraham's nation, Judah. And we learn in 2 Samuel 7 that this seed of the woman, the second Adam, would also come from the house of David. So the seed of the woman from mankind, the seed of Abraham from Israel, the seed of Judah or the tribe of Judah from that specific tribe in the nation of Israel, and the house, if you will, narrowing down, of David. The Old Testament people of God then lived in anticipation of the coming seed of the woman, the one who would come from Abraham, the one who would come from Judah, the one who would come from David. So the Old Testament people of God, Israel, were called to believe in this coming Messiah. If they trusted God's promise of salvation in this coming Christ, this coming Messiah, this coming second Adam, this coming seed of the woman, this coming son of Abraham, if they trusted in him, they were assured they would receive the the eternal rest that was lost by the first Adam. They were saved by Jesus by looking through the types and shadows and sacrifices of the Old Testament that pointed to him. And this leads us to something more we must say about the Sabbath in the Old Testament people of God. As the Old Testament people of God walked with the Lord, they were given the Sabbath as a command, as a pledge, as a token, as a symbol of their their eternal rest in the Lord that's promised to them. In other words, God continued to give the Old Testament people the gift of a Sabbath day. He gave it to Adam. Adam failed to keep it. And then he gave that same gift of the Sabbath day to the people of Israel as a pledge or a token of what would be eternally theirs if they trusted in the coming seed of woman, the woman, the coming seed of Abraham. So look at Exodus chapter 20. If you remember the story, God has brought the people out of Egypt. Nearly universally everyone pretty much knows this story in America anyway, so I won't be retelling it. They're in slavery to Egypt. God brings them out through Moses. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, he makes a temporary national typological covenant, if you will, with Israel that governs them as a people on their way to the promised land and as a people in the promised land. It is a temporary covenant that governs them as a people as they await the heir, the Christ. Paul gets after that in Galatians 3. And so he says in this covenant, look at Chapter 20 and verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, now notice the reminder at the beginning, I am the Lord your God. Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I want to just consider that for a second. Foundationally, everything he's about to command them is hung on the fact that he's already saved them. Hear that? These are not commands given so that they might be redeemed from Egypt, so that he might be their God and 
they be his people. These are commands given in light of the fact that he has redeemed them, in light of the fact that he is their God and they're his people. So he gives them these commands. The first command, you shall have, note verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He's telling them who to worship. You worship me and me alone. Before me doesn't mean like I'm first in order. It means in my presence. Where is God present? Everywhere. So how many other gods can you have? Zero. Right? It isn't I'm first and then you can worship other things. I am God alone. Who you worship. Then he tells you how you worship. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. Don't, don't make anything in a, of a likeness of the creation. I'm the only one who makes images. The only one who makes image bearers is me, and I made you as an image bearer. Don't worship like the pagans worship. You'll worship me the way I want to be worshipped. If you don't understand, by the way, that God is really committed to being worshipped in a particular way, you haven't read the book of Leviticus. The entire book on how specific he is about how he'll be worshipped. Then he goes on in verse 6, or excuse me, in verse 7, you shall not take the name of your, the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Don't use my name in vain. It's part of worship, incidentally, uh, the how to worship, if you will. And now he's going to go on in the fourth commandment and tell you when to worship. Who to worship? Me alone. How you worship? Not like the pagans worship their gods. When do you worship? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Do you see the pattern? God created this way as a pattern for us. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. Listen, the Sabbath day is a gift. You if you see it as a command that is burdensome, you're not reading the text at all. I've redeemed you, and I'm not going to work you like some kind of slave. In fact, your slaves get the day off. That's why it's remarkable to me when people rail against the day off, drag their kids out to whatever sport it is, and work them like a slave. Even slaves in Israel got a day off. It's a gift. For in six days, verse 11, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in it, in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Note the ground for the command of worshipful rest on the seventh day. The ground for the command is that the Lord completed the work of, his cre- of creation on the seventh day and rested. Therefore, you follow the pattern. He built the pattern for you, not for him. God rested on the seventh day, so you shall rest on the seventh day. Now, that pattern of the seventh day becomes a major issue throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The people of God want eternal rest in God, and the Sabbath day is a token or a pledge of that eternal Sabbath rest. Further, God promised to give the people of Israel rest in the land of their inheritance. That promised land was also a picture, a type, a token of eternal rest in Christ. 
They were to go there and trust and obey the Lord and find their rest in Him and in His good land. The Old Testament people of God living in the promised land, trusting in the Lord and keeping His commands, delighting in His Sabbath day, was to be a picture of what was lost in the Garden of Eden, God's original land where the first Adam was. And what would be restored in the promised seed of the woman? But Israel sinned. They did not obey God's voice. They did not keep the Sabbath. And thus they were told they would not enter his rest. The faithless and disobedient Israelites did not enter the promised land. And they would not enter that greater heavenly land of God's eternal rest in Christ either. Why? Because they did not believe. And their lack of true faith was evidenced by their disobedience. They had a kind of temporary faith, if you will. A faith that got them out of the consequences of slavery in Egypt. But not a true faith, an enduring faith, and that showed up in their disobedience. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Let's go back there now. Hebrews chapter 3, and look at verse 16. He's talking about the Old Testament saints who were headed toward the promised land. And he says in verse 16, For who were those, Hebrews 3 verse 16, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? See, they heard these promises. They heard these gospel truths. And yet they rebelled. Who were they who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Say, oh, it was disobedience. That's right. Look at the last verse. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Well, what was it? Disobedience or unbelief? Yes, because unbelief issues in disobedience. It's evidenced by disobedience. So then, look down to verse 11 of chapter 4. He warns us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, they heard the same gospel that we hear. They heard it as a promise to come. We hear it as something that's now been fulfilled in the incarnate Son who has come. Don't be like them when they didn't believe, when they had temporary faith and therefore failed to reach their promised land and that eternal rest. Don't be like them. That temporary faith showed up in their disobedience. But strive to continue to keep your eye on Jesus Christ. Pursue Him. Run after him. As I said last week, like a marathon runner, don't get off the path. You keep running until the end. So then if Adam missed the hope that the Sabbath promised him and failed to obey God and lost that promised eternal rest in God, we might ask, what hope is there for us? Adam wasn't born in sin like we are. What hope is there for us? And if, is, if in many 
if many, if you will, in the Old Testament, Israel failed to obtain the promised eternal rest, violated the commands of God, and missed the hope that the Sabbath promised them, what hope do any of us have? Well, in the Old Testament, God promised, and this is what I want you to hear, I've been driving out this whole time, God promised the Messiah would come, and he would establish that eternal rest for which we're waiting. That's why I had Jason start this morning with Isaiah 11. Isaiah tells us that there is a spirit-empowered Messiah coming, the son of David and the son of Abraham, and he's coming. He will be righteous and holy and just. He'll keep the law in every way. As Adam failed to, as Israel failed to, he will not fail. Keep it in every way. He will spread the knowledge of the Lord across the earth. As God's people have failed to, he will not fail. And you get this interesting imagery where he'll, he will make the wolf and the lamb lie down together. He will give us rest. That's why Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 concludes this way. In that day, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse is from the house of David. The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and listen, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that leads to our second point, which is not nearly as long as the first point, but really just tying it all together, the, the gift of the New Testament Sabbath. The gift of the New Testament Sabbath. The New Testament tells us that Jesus came as the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. In fact, Matthew opens that way, doesn't it? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, starts that way. He is the promised Messiah, the son of God, the son of man. He came to keep the law that Adam and Israel failed to keep. If you watch Jesus in his life, as you read about him in the Gospels, he is religious about law-keeping. And he's the only one who's able to perfectly and perpetually keep the law. He's actually challenged as one who violates the Sabbath, isn't he? Multiple occasions, they want to show him to be a lawbreaker. And he has to spend his time explaining to them the Sabbath, not because he doesn't care about the Sabbath, but he's explained to them the Sabbath precisely to demonstrate to them that he is not violating God's law. He is, in fact, keeping the Sabbath. They're violating it. He kept the Sabbath perfectly as a pledge of God's eternal rest. Jesus was never a Sabbath violator, and the Gospels are at pains to show you this. At pains. And as the one who fulfilled the law, listen, Jesus offered us rest in himself. What does he say in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He went to the cross and paid for our sins there. He rose on the third day, third day from the day of his death, the first day of the week. And those who trust in him find their rest in him. The Old Testament people of God were to look forward to Jesus for the eternal rest, And we look to him as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should have failed to have reached it. 
seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, fear temporary faith. He's not saying fear weak, weak faith. Weak faith is of a different species than temporary faith. Weak faith still apprehends a strong Savior, an almighty Savior. Temporary faith is just false faith. Fear that. He goes on, for good news came to us just as to them. That's speaking about the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament people of God. Good news came to us just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Who are those who listened? Like Caleb and Joshua. They listened, but a lot of the other people didn't. For we who have believed enter that rest. See, many in Israel failed to enter that rest, even as Adam failed in the garden. But God spoke of another day later on, this new covenant day in which we would find our rest in Christ. Look down at verse 8 of chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken, verse 8 of chapter 4, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, look at verse 9, there remains a sabbatismos, a, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What's interesting is the word for rest has changed here. In verses 1 through 11, all throughout, in fact, this whole section of text, we have the same Greek word for rest. But now we have this Greek word for Sabbath rest in verse 9. And that doesn't merely speak to a state like we enter the state of eternal rest in Christ. It speaks of an activity like there remains a Sabbath rest as an activity, activity for the people of God to participate in. Now look at Hebrews 4.10. For whoever, I actually don't like that translation, whoever, the pronoun he is better there from the Greek, I believe. For he who has entered, now notice that word God's rest. He who has entered God's rest. Again, the word God is not there in the Greek text. That's an insertion by these translators, which I think is an unfortunate insertion by these translators. It says, "Whoever for he who has entered his rest, that's what it says, he who has entered his rest has also rested from his works. As, now here comes a simile, as God did from his He who has entered his rest has also rested from his works is speaking of Jesus, the incarnate son. He has entered his rest as he rested from his works and he rested in his works. Here's the simile. You know similes like or as, right? You guys know that, okay? Here's a simile. As God rested from his works. That's the comparison being made. God rested from his work of creating all things, and so there remained for us a Sabbath rest on the seventh day. Now Jesus has rested from his work of redeeming all things, of bringing in the new creation, and so there remains for us a Sabbath rest on the first day of the week. For he that entered into his rest he also ceased from his own works as God did from his. The he there is Jesus, the incarnate son. That's the context of this entire book. The Christ 
rested from his works as God rested from his. What does that mean? Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in his perfect law-keeping life. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, exhausting the curse of God due to us against himself at the cross. Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, at the cross. Thus, Jesus declares at the cross, it is finished. At his resurrection, Jesus conquered death and brought us life and justification and immortality. At his resurrection, in other words, Jesus ushered in the new creation. So that Paul can say, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So the question is, are you in Christ? Have you trusted Christ for salvation? Have you repented of your sins? Have you looked to Christ for forgiveness? See, God created you for eternal rest with him. But your sin will bring you eternal condemnation under his holy and just wrath. But Christ came to recreate you anew for that eternal blessed rest in God. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Have you looked to him for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you repented, turned from your sin, and believed, looked to him as your hope? He'll save you if you do. You'll be a new creation. Friends, God made the old creation in the space of six days, and then he rested on the seventh day, Saturday, the Sabbath. Jesus ushered in the new creation in his life and death and resurrection, and he rested on the day of his resurrection, Sunday, the first day of the week. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Those who trust in Christ have their eternal rest in him. However, we do not see and know all the benefits of that in the here and now. But we do have the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, as a pledge, a token, a gift, which sings to us of our eternal rest in the resurrected Christ. You hear what I'm saying? If you see the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, as some kind of law that takes away your freedom to work more, that burdens you, takes away your ability to entertain yourself more, sleep in, or whatever you think of it as some kind of burden on you, then you have completely and utterly missed it. It's like me saying that this ring on my finger is a burden to me rather than a pledge of the covenant, the blessedness of the covenant my wife and I have with one another. The Lord's Day Sunday is a weekly gift, a token, a pledge 
reminding you that this old fallen creation in which you labor and toil and sin and suffer and die is merely temporary. The Lord's Day sings to you that Jesus is risen. It sings to you that you will be risen with him, that eternal rest in Christ is yours. That's why we dress up and plan and prepare and make a big deal out of Easter Sunday because Christ has risen and eternal spiritual rest is ours in him. And that's why the church ought to see every Sunday in exactly the same way. For we gather as a body to rejoice in this weekly pledge from our Lord Jesus that we'll have eternal rest in him as he nourishes our faith by the Spirit through the word and sacrament. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us Jesus leads the singing and Jesus is the preacher. Why would we not want to come hear from him who is our rest? That's why the church meets every Sunday from the beginning until now because Jesus rose on Sunday and Jesus poured out his spirit on Sunday. And when Jesus rested from his work of beginning the new creation, he rested in a way that he gave us the gift of the Lord's day as a token or a pledge. And thus every Sunday we gather together to proclaim our great hope. And here it is. He is risen. Amen. Father, we are thankful for the hope that we have in your Son. This great resurrection hope that he has come, that he has been faithful where the first Adam failed, that he has been faithful where Israel failed, that he has been faithful where we failed, that he kept kept your law in every regard. Though tempted in every way, he was sinless and holy and undefiled. That he exhausted the curse for sin due to us at the cross. That he conquered Satan. That he rose on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, and so gave us life and resurrection and immortality, justification, the forgiveness of sins, eternal hope, that He began a new creation. And we have the joy of coming together on a regular basis again and again and again being reminded of our eternal rest in Christ, our hope of glory and resurrection, the fact that he will one day consummate the kingdom, return and make all things new, and we will dwell with him forever. May you cause those who do not know your son to look to him in faith. May you cause those of us who do know him to never forsake this glorious privilege, this great gift of gathering together corporately to hear him sing and preach, to hear his word as the Spirit carries it into our hearts and minds, to be built up 
in faith, receiving grace upon grace in your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, the one who is risen, Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.